Hello and welcome to All Tomorrow, where every other week we navigate the high seas of global politics. I'm Moni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. Today we're going to focus on the rough seas of Western Europe, which just hosted the return of face-to-face diplomacy after the pandemic. And expectations were so high for this transatlantic reset and the realignment of the global agenda as the world's rich countries met in person in different cities for a whole bunch of summits. The G7 met in Cornwall. That was Biden's first international meeting and Merkel's last international meeting. Soon after that, NATO's 30 members convened in Geneva, followed by some really highly anticipated bilaterals, including the Putin-Biden summit, which everybody says was Biden's best show at the time. And it was anticipated to be Europe's time to host and shine and celebrate the reopening and showing leadership among the allies on some of the heftier items on the agenda that include obviously sort of containing China, standing up to Russia, strengthening the climate agenda, and spearheading the global economic recovery. Well, Peter, they certainly hosted, but they didn't shine. And remember, nearly two years ago today, we did a podcast that posited the possibility that Europe was resurgent. It was an optimistic kind of take, given that the Trump administration's hostility to multilateralism led Europe to be kind of the lone ranger in so many different arenas. Well, in this G7, I think Europe fell far, far, far short of global expectations on key issues, the main issue being China and standing up to China against human rights abuses in Hong Kong and the Xinjiang province and its hostile trade and economic policies. China's investment money in Europe was at stake as many, many leaders, including France, vacillated when the time came for tough public declarations. And they managed to somehow disappoint the U.S. and provoke China at the same time. A week later, the NATO meeting was no different, except the main course here was Russia and the security issue. And it was evident that Europe's energy interests, the Russia-Turkey relationship and its growing military footprint in the Mediterranean had a big impact. The first post-pandemic alliance summit was very photographed and full of smiling faces, but it again exposed Europe's aging military capabilities and its inability to back up NATO's original commitment to collective defense. Wait, wait, Bumani, that I, I, you're being way too tough. I mean, I, maybe it wasn't the sort of policy decision-making place that it should have been, but I think not all is as negative as you're painting it. I mean, if we go back to the basics, what are the basics? Europe is open again. It's finally really accelerating on the vaccination front. It's holding summits. It's receiving tourists. It's expecting a growth of about 4% in 2021. And and now Europe has gotten its act together and is now launching a pretty robust recovery program in a lot of its economically injured countries. And to finance the spending in Europe, they just launched their first euro bond, which I remember we talked about a year ago, but they finally did it and it did super well on the market. And, you know, I think a lot of the timidity that you're referring to, Mooney, is mostly due actually to domestic politics. If you think about what Europe is facing at the moment, it's facing two massively powerful elections that could really change the continent. The first one is, of course, Angela Merkel's departure in September and the internal power struggle among her coalition parties for a successor. And more than anything, 
the fear of the vacuum that that will create in European leadership. And the second major one is the upcoming presidential election in France in 2022. And France just had regional elections, which showed minimal support for Macron, lack of excitement for Le Pen, and staggering, literally historically staggering abstentionism in France, a country that's famous for political participation. And Macron, who has positioned himself as this international leader of the climate change agenda and as a global thinker, and he was crushed by the voters. And so France's political stage now, what everybody is fearing or hoping for, depending on what side you're in, is that France's political stage is now completely ripe for a major new candidate to appear on the scene and sort of scream through the polls. It's really startling as you look through the map. The Swedish prime minister also was kicked out of office. There's really a lot of political weakness around the map. But it seems that Mario Draghi, Italy's whatever-it-takes technocrat, is the only kind of star in Europe fueled by his magical pixie dust as a European Central Bank savior of the euro and also, of course, by Italy receiving the EU's largest subsidies after COVID, which he's making good use of. And just the other thing that worries me in general is the effect of all this turmoil on Europe's younger generations, which have been the hardest hit every time there's a crisis. Political, social, and economic hardships are really straining young people's belief in the future of a unified Europe. And we wonder now if it's enough to avoid another lost generation of young people in Europe. It's hard to say whether the recovery efforts will be enough to um, avoid another 2008. Let's hear from Thea. This is Tia Stake, where we take a look at social justice and youth issues. I'm Tia Ivanovich. So this time I really want to take a look at the disenchanted youth in Europe. Muni, you talked about the lost generation, and you really hit the question that's on everybody's mind. Remember that the economic crisis in 2008 forced huge numbers of young people onto the unemployment lines. Young Europeans couldn't find work in their countries and they had to move. So Spanish nurses went to Germany, Greek doctors went to Britain, Italian engineers to Sweden. So is this happening again? Today, many are calling young Europeans the sacrifice generation as they seem to be their government's last priority during the pandemic. And the disdain is mutual. European young people are not only disengaged from their political leaders, they're also very apathetic and or alienated from the traditional forms of politics. So, Peter, in France, you mentioned the recent regional elections saw a huge abstention rate. It was 70 percent, actually. But it's over 80 percent among young people. That's the highest rate recorded in nearly half a century. And it's a trend that's happening all around the continent. So Gen Z, and I also want to note here, I'm not part of Gen Z, has been hit disproportionately by the biggest educational disruption in modern history, a surge in unemployment and the psychological effects of lockdown. Young workers are also the least likely group to have received financial support for lost jobs. So research shows that 64% of young Europeans are at risk of depression, and that's up from 15% before the COVID crisis. Recently, The Guardian did an extensive piece and interviewed 50 young people from all over Europe. They all reported very similar problems, mental health problems, massive layoffs, and job insecurity. And several of them also said they feel the increased politicization of events. So it's not America that's gotten polarized. It's also in Europe. So it seems that this whole generation, not only those who feel disadvantaged and depressed, now believe you know, our interests as a group, our wishes and needs don't count. 
And in this respect, the pandemic has created a unity among Gen Z. It's given a push to solidarity amongst this generation. So I want to hear what you think. Do you think there's increased apathy among European youth? Tweet at us at Altamar Podcast. Thea, once again, youth is overlooked and disgruntled as countries fail to meet their needs. But hopefully there's a glimmer of optimism in the new recovery plan that the EU just passed and is about to launch. And we can talk to our guest about this and can mitigate un- or at least avoid another lost generation. This and many questions is what we're going to talk about with European expert Eric Jones today. Eric is the director of European and Eurasian Studies at the Paul H. Nitze School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. And in the fall, he'll take the helm as director of the Robert Schumann Center at the European University Institute. He's a frequent commentator on European politics and political economy for the Financial Times, New York Times, USA Today, and newspapers and magazines across Europe. He was also Dea's professor and advisor while at ZEISS. So, Eric, welcome to Altamar. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be with you, Mary. Thanks to see you, Peter. So, Eric, Europe seems to be a big contradiction, and we've talked about this briefly before you came on. Vaccination rates are finally moving, and there's been good news on the economic front with growth rates accelerating and eurobonds selling well. But the political scene in Europe seems to be floundering. There's apathy as a great winner in the recent French elections. Germany really can't seem to find a replacement for Merkel. The EU is unable to get its act together on key issues from actual vaccines to real reactions to the increasing intolerance in Poland, Hungary, and Bulgaria. What is your assessment of what's happening in Europe? And are you optimistic or kind of skeptical? Well, Mooney, I think the question really provides the answer all by itself. What you have just illustrated is that Europe is not one place. Europe is lots of different places. And those different places are all going through a bunch of different things. And we can highlight all the bad things that each different place is doing. And when you add all these different bad things together, it looks terrible. But the fact of the matter is that there are lots of good things going on in Europe as well. Good things that are related to the recovery that's about to set in, good things associated with the amount of solidarity that they were able to show during the crisis, and good things in terms of their ability to project themselves vis-a-vis the outside world. So I think there's bad, but there's also good in this big, confusing place called Europe. What is your take on Mario Draghi? He seems to be kind of the rising star of political turmoil in Europe, and he seems to have made really good use of Italy's COVID subsidies and appears to be gaining leadership. Well, I mean, rising star is, uh, is a little ungenerous. This is the guy who saved Europe in the middle of the crisis. He came out in 2012 and promised to do whatever it takes. He said it would be enough, and it was. Now he's back again for Act Two. This is dramatic. And in a context of Italy, this is a, such an important opportunity for Italy to make the changes that they've needed to make over the last 25 years. He represents the best opportunities they have, but that doesn't mean he's the full solution. So we'll see if the Italians can pull it together. You know, I was born and raised in Italy, and it always seems to me that there's few politics as cannibalistic as Italy's. And, you know, as somebody rises, somebody's somebody's at the bottom of the pole sawing it down. So I, I guess the big question is how long Draghi can last. I mean, he has clearly is making the right changes, but will he last? So <laughs> I cut my teeth studying politics in Belgium. And I'll tell you, if there's any place that gives Italy a run for its money, it's Belgium. That said, Mario Draghi's got a good run right now. He's about to go into what's called the white semester. 
because you can't dissolve parliament in the last six months of the presidency of the republic. So there's this guy, Sergio Mattarella, who's president of the republic. He has to be replaced in January. And the question is whether they're going to make Draghi president as opposed to prime minister. If they do, that could usher in a period of relative political instability in Italy. If they don't, Draghi could stick around for another two years. So we'll have to wait and see how that how that plays out. Let's look north and with big upcoming elections in France and Germany, and let's do Germany first. What is the impact? I mean, we, lots has been written on this. You've written on it. Like, what's the impact of the EU without Merkel, particularly because the Germans seem really undecided about what to do next in terms of electing a new chancellor? I think I think those two parts of the question need to be separated. I mean, the, the, the idea of a Europe without Merkel, Merkel was a great deal broker. She's a very pragmatic politician. She's not a great visionary leader, but, but she helped Europe muddle through in some very effective ways during the last crisis. And in this crisis, she was even more decisive. So hats off to her. That was great stuff. But every politician has their sell-by date. It's time for them to move on. And the real issue is, what is Germany going to do without the kind of coherence that Merkel represented? And that's not about individuals. That's about party competition. They've got a lot of powerful political parties in Germany, but none is overwhelming. And without that clear leadership, clear ideological commitment in Germany, then we have to wait and see who's going to win the elections and what coalition is going to be formed before we can start moving forward. And what do you expect will happen this fall in, in Germany? Well, I mean, my, my expectations are that you should never underestimate the Christian Democrats. Of course, there are lots of places where Christian Democrats have disappeared altogether. Just look right next door at the Netherlands. But, but the Christian Democrats in Germany seem to be doing a lot better than their critics might have expected. So I think it's fair to assume they're going to be part of any coalition that emerges out of those next round of elections. If they are, what their election manifesto makes clear is that they're not going to tolerate lots of changes at the European level in the way economics works, or at least the way macroeconomics is governed. And for somebody like me who studies the euro and studies macroeconomic performance, that's a little bit unfortunate because we need much more creative, much more inventive leadership at the European level. We need Mario Draghi to bring Moody back. So let's move to France. You know, Macron clearly has expanded his footprint as a global leader. And while that footprint expanded, the footprint that he left behind as a national leader seems to have eroded. You know, is he going to be able to maintain his hold on power? The recent elections were certainly signs for him, but it didn't go well for Marie Le Pen and her nationalist agenda either. So what does this leave a vacuum in France for other populists to try to sneak through? What It's a very volatile situation in France. So the thing to remember about Emmanuel Macron is that when he got elected in the first round of the presidential elections in 2017, the man was overwhelmingly popular. He had 23% of the vote, right? The French electoral system is just very different from everybody else's electoral system. It's got this weird two-tiered race. There were lots of candidates. He had fewer than a quarter of the vote, but he managed to become president because he was better than the only remaining alternative, who was Marine Le Pen. His challenge going into the next round of elections is not to be popular, it's just to be more popular than anybody else. If he can get in the top two, he's pretty much assured to win. If he can't, then we have a real problem because Marine Le Pen is actually becoming more and more popular as time goes on. And she represents a very different pattern for French government, which would have huge implications for Europe. 
Eric, we just heard some concerning data from TEA on European youth and looking at the results of the French election where 80% of the young voters didn't even vote. Is this a snapshot of what is happening across Europe? And is this kind of the worrying symptom of another lost generation or are there bright spots? I mean, I'll tell you, Moody, if we could get 20% of 18 to 25 year olds in the United States to vote regularly, that would be like cause for celebration. So the fact that people are not voting in France is actually part of a much larger trend. And remember, these were not national elections. These were local elections. And local elections tend to be less enthusiastic in terms of support than national elections. If you look at France, you look at Italy, you look at Germany, abstention rates are on the rise. Democracy is becoming less and less attractive as a means of political expression. Does this mean we've lost a generation? No, what it means is that we've got a young generation that's looking for other ways to engage in politics. And we need to figure out what those other ways are and bring those into the political system. Because if we don't, then you're probably right. Then we're going to face some real longer term considerations that we're going to have to address. What are some of those alternatives that you see? Well, in the place where I live in Italy, there was this thing called the Sardines Movement. And they were called the Sardines Movement because they wanted to pack as many young people into a single space as they could to show their ability to mobilize people. This was unbelievably effective at marshalling young people into the political process. Unfortunately, then came the pandemic, right? And packing lots of young people into a small space was no longer as attractive as a means of political mobilization. So now we've got to wait for the pandemic to go away to see if we can get these young people back uh, into their collective action. So let's move to foreign policy. We've talked about the recent summits, which is what I'm a little bit disappointed with. All hosted in Europe, great hosts, created some expectations of this new recovered Europe, eager to engage, vaccinated, leading transatlantic relationships. And this kind of all fell flat, especially when the declarations were kind of, um, you know, not as uh, as strong as, as what some of the allies expected. What is your take on Europe's performance in this flurry of summits? <laughs> I mean... Come on, if you're a European and you're meeting with the Biden administration for the first time, the first thing you want to do is poke it a little bit and make sure it's real, right? Um, the fact that they had anything to sign at the end of the summit is a, is a happy event. The reality is that the process of transatlantic cooperation has restarted. They've decided to agree to disagree on some things like Nord Stream 2. They've decided to suspend other things like the, the big fight over Boeing and Airbus. And, and they've decided that they're going to find ways to work together on things like China. Now, if they can do those three things, that would actually be really good in terms of making progress. And then most important of all, they've got the tax issue. The Biden administration came out with an ambitious proposal to have a global minimum corporate income tax. And, and, and although it wasn't the 22% they wanted, they got something close to 15%. There are loopholes, but it's progress. And this kind of multilateral progress is what the Biden administration brought back to the table. And that's where the Europeans are engaging. Are they leading? They saved multilateralism for the last four years. And now it's available to the United States again. That is their gift. Well, expectations were low because, frankly, there was no transatlantic relationship with Trump. And now there were great expectations about this renewed alliance. Are we being kind of too forgiving of the fact that there wasn't enough substance during the meetings and that maybe there's some concern that about Europe being a weak partner? Well, I mean, let's not forget, Trump was not overwhelmingly unpopular in Europe. There, there were many European leaders who liked Trump. Giuseppe Conte, who was the prime minister of Italy at the time, actually got along very well with Trump. But it was a very different kind of transatlantic relationship. 
And, and a lot of those European leaders that aligned with Trump are now finding themselves on the back foot because they've got an administration characteristically different. All these people need to be brought back into the fold again, and we need to have a much more coherent conversation. This was just the first step, and it worked. Everybody came away being able to say they won something and that something was delivered and that multilateralism is alive again, and that's what everybody wants. I think one of the big expectations is about a renewed alliance between Europe and the U.S., and we touched on that right now. And tell me where you think this relationship ought to go. I mean, you mentioned three important things. Well, actually you mentioned four with the corporate income tax rate. Where do you think the relationship has the most to gain? And how do we really try to deepen this so that the break that happened in the past four years doesn't reoccur? Mooney raised a really important point before about, about the youth, and I sort of took it in the political direction, but there's an economic direction there that we need to pay attention to. There are all these young people that are unemployed on both sides of the Atlantic. There was a lot of low-hanging fruit at the end of the Obama administration in the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership that needs to be harvested. Now, it wasn't being harvested effectively back then. There was a lot of unexpected opposition in, to the Transatlantic Trade and Part Investment Partnership in Europe already in 2016. And so we've got to figure out a way to make that happen. Because if we can, if we can get some regulatory convergence across the Atlantic, we can stop this return to economic nationalism. We can re-engage with economic deepening across the Atlantic, and we can create jobs. And, and that jobs and prosperity is what the younger people want, but it's also what the transatlantic relationship requires. Let's talk a little bit about China and Russia, and then we can talk in two different questions. But I mean, I think clearly China is a, both of them are challenges for Europe, but it seems like China is really forcing the Europeans to dance. Because on the one hand, they want to condemn the human rights abuses in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. On the other hand, they've got lots of projects cooking with the Chinese. And how long can that dance last? I mean, these things are not as paragons of Western democracy. You can't just keep going and pretending that a little criticism is going to simply solve the problem. Okay, but... but Peter, this gets us back to the point that Mooney made at the very start of this conversation, right? I mean, if we want to treat Europe as a big monolithic block, then it looks like Europe is doing lots of inconsistent things with China. But the fact of the matter is, there are different parts of Europe that have different relationships with China. Uh, you could look at Germany. Germany has China is deeply embedded in its supply chain and export markets. And so Germany is trying to figure out how to keep the German economy going and sever Chinese relations with China or discipline China in terms of human rights at the same time. That's a tough nut to crack. Hungary, by, by contrast, is actually looking for China to bring foreign direct investment into the country. That's a different kind of puzzle, right? Italy is somewhere in between. And if you look at what Mario Draghi is doing, he's actually the only one who's balancing, right? Giuseppe Conte had decided to join in the Belt and Road Initiative in 2019. Now Mario Draghi is saying, maybe we don't need all that Chinese investment. Maybe we would be better off being more independent from China. So that's the country I would watch in this particular relationship. That's interesting. I mean, you're right to point out that each country does its own thing. On the other hand, with each country doing their own thing, you become less of a union and more of simply like everywhere else in the world. But supposedly, supposedly the EU was growing to be different. And in Russia, there is an opportunity to come together, but here again, it sort of seems like there's sort of reluctance to come together and people and different countries want to do different things. Germany, in particular, wanted to be less aggressive. I mean, 
So it's interesting. We, you know, we criticize Germany for wanting to be less aggressive, but let's not forget it was Angela Merkel and the German government that kept the coalition of sanctions together on Russia since 2014. So for longer than anyone possibly imagined, Germany has been leading the European coalition in punishing Russia for its involvement in the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Now, having said that, Germany also has a, a significant economic relationship with Russia in terms of its access to natural gas. And, and it's understandable that they would want to increase that access to natural gas because they're trying to make sure that they have the ability to use natural gas, not as a network good, but as a traded fungible commodity. And that's how they're going to generate their energy security. Obviously, the United States would be less enthusiastic about that for a variety of reasons. But that doesn't mean that, that German policy is incoherent or inconsistent. They've actually been very coherent and consistent, which is part of the reason why the Biden administration has agreed to disagree with them over Nord Stream 2, because we have our perspective, they have theirs, and there's not going to be an easy compromise between the two. Do you see these things as breaking the cohesiveness of the EU? I mean, just seems like... Going back to Taya's point about youth, I mean, these things become less and less believable as everybody goes their own way. I'm, and when I say these things, I mean the notion that together we're better, stronger, more representative of Western values. I mean, it just seems like when you have the Orbans and Bulgarias and Polands and and everybody muddles, and everybody muddles with Russia and muddles with China. How can you have a cohesive sense of European unity? Peter, I think that's a really good question. It comes to the weird jargon that the Europeans use, right? And the way we understand it. So think about it this way. European Union talks a lot about having a common foreign and security policy. And so the, the, the takeaway from us on the American side of the pond is to look at that and go, oh, yeah, European Union has one foreign and security policy, right? Because it's common. But the answer is, no, 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 that's not what they mean. Where they agree on something, where they have a position in common, they have a foreign and security policy. They have never agreed on Russia. They've never had a common foreign and security policy that was effective vis-a-vis -vis Russia. That was true in the 1990s. It was true in the 2000s. It's true today. And, and the fact that they're no more cohesive today than they were then is not an indictment of the European Union. On the contrary, they've shown that they've been able to come up with more in common this time around than they've ever been able to do before, which is that story about sanctions I talked about from 2014 onward. So I think they're showing progress. It's just maybe we have a different metric that we're trying to put them up against. And we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you, are you optimistic about some of the economic issues that seem to be moving forward, and in particular, whether it's the recovery programs, the bonds, et cetera, that does seem to be somehow unified. Hey, man, how can you not be optimistic when you see more and more people getting vaccinated, you see more and more people going to restaurants, you see growth accelerating, inflation is puffing up, and you look at it and you go, okay, this is starting to look more normal than we saw for the last 18 months. So that's surely grounds for optimism. Does that mean that everything is going to be hunky-dory going forward? No, there are enormous challenges that the European Union has to face, both as individual countries and as the Union as a whole. But let's face it, things aren't that hunky-dory in the United States either. So I think the optimism has got to be guarded. In both. There's no way I was insinuating that Europe was hunky-dory and, and that Europe wasn't hunky-dory and the United States was a paradise. Trust me, we actually live here. You live in Europe. We know it. We know what's happening here. <laughs> Eric, thank hey, you so much for joining us on Altamar. It's hugely appreciated and great fun. Well, Peter Mooney, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
Peter, this is a lot of interesting news and some bright spots, more so than uh, we had laid out in the beginning. I still have lingering concerns, especially about the aging capacity of Europe to be a leader. In the past years, and especially since the, the 2008 crisis, it really hasn't gotten its footing politically, and it definitely hasn't gotten its footing in the military capabilities in terms of reforming just the way that they can be a strong transatlantic defense partner. So despite the fact that there are some bright stars, I continue to believe that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in Europe that has been slowed by COVID. A dear Italian friend of mine used to say that Europe is la fortezza dei pensionati, the fortress of the pensioners, because as it, it becomes an older and older society, you know, exactly the problem that Taya pointed out, which was that the leaders only care about these older people that are living longer and not about younger people. And I think that's the crux. And we didn't have time to really get into that because you can't talk about everything in Europe in 20 minutes. But to me, that's the crux. And what Mario Draghi is doing now in Italy is so optimistic and hopeful, but, uh, you know, Italian politics has a way of taking you down. And, you know, as Eric mentioned, they're going to kick him upstairs to be president. That will be the end of all of the reforms. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I also feel that Eric was rightly comparing with what's happening in the United States, but we in the United States are no paragon to be compared with. For the last four years, we saw Europe leading and what I'm afraid of now is that Europe is going to go into a much less important role as leaders of what the West is all about and Western values. With that, see you next time. You can listen to All Tomorrow wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. Mm-hmm.